3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Nicely warmed up by Kevin O'Sullivan after that 9.30 to 10 race through what's in the papers and what news is coming up today. We've got uh, the crowning of King Charles up in Scotland. Uh, We'll be going live to Edinburgh to catch that with Sarah Hewson, our Royal Editor. We'll find out what's going on uh, in that part of the world. Also, uh, it is, as you may have noticed, the 75th birthday of the NHS for some uh, heaven only knows reason. uh, There's some kind of uh, performance art going on down at Westminster Abbey. That's right. Uh, They're having a church service to worship the NHS, they literally are taking 1,500 healthcare workers into the church to celebrate the NHS. 75 years, 7 million people on a waiting list, a further 10 million people on another waiting list uh, who have had one operation but need a second one. Uh, People who can't get a dentist, people who can't see a doctor, people who can't get into hospital because there are too many people in there already and not enough beds. Despite the fact that £180 billion has been put into the system and it's not being spent properly because at least half of that money is clearly not being spent on actual clinical procedures. Unfortunately for me, uh, I'm not one of those who worships the NHS. I'm not one of those who says that it's one of the greatest things that the world has ever created. And I'm also not going to be giving them the big hello today. What I am going to do is ask all of you to give us your versions of your stories with the NHS, because we like to hear your stories. We like to tell the powers that be what you really think. So we want to know, we do this every now and again, but we haven't done it for a while. We want to know what your experiences have been recently with the NHS. Rishi Sunak says uh, that he's going to be rebuilding it. he's going to be reforming it. he's going to put another 2.4 billion pounds into it over the next five years. He's going to hire another 300,000 people, doctors, nurses, anesthetists ambulance drivers, paramedics, all manner of people to be put into the system to make it more efficient and to make it better. Stephen Barclay, who's the Secretary of State for Health currently, uh, he's about the seventh one in the last seven hours, uh, he says that it's evolution, not revolution, that they need. Well, we shall see, shall we? Claire Fox is going to join us, Director of the Academy of Ideas, of course, Baroness Fox uh, from the House of Lords. We'll find out what she thinks of all of that. Up first, though, we're also going to talk about the latest banking story, Metro Bank, the latest bank in the firing line. Uh, they're preventing gender criticism political parent groups from opening bank accounts. This all got kicked off last week. Nigel Farage declared uh, that he had parted company with Coots. He didn't actually name them, but Coots has been the bank that has since come out and identified itself. Coots have said, oh, we didn't get rid of Nigel Farage because of his political belief. Uh, We just got rid of him because he didn't have enough money. I don't know about you, uh, but that doesn't seem likely to me. Uh, Nigel Farage, of course, uh, is travelling over in Europe at the moment wearing a hideous pink shirt uh, or sort of overall. I wish he wouldn't. doesn't look great. But that's another story. I like Nigel Farage. Uh, he should be able to get a bank account in this country. It's a ludicrous idea that he cannot. 0344 499 1000. We will also be talking about a great many other things. Annabelle Denham uh, is here, of course, with us. We'll find out what's going on at Wimbledon. Boris Becker, not Johnson, hit a horse in his bedroom. That's all you need to know for the moment. We'll be talking about that. Uh, we'll also be talking, of course, about everything else that's going on in the big wide world, including the Labour Party, including why TfL have banned a cake. From being advertised for a West End show Apparently because it's bad for you Victoria Sponge is now bad for you 0344 499 1000 is the number Teachers are on strike as well by the way Uh, Just in case you were wondering why your kids are hanging around Uh, Just make them listen to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham There's a proper education for you This is Talk TV Let's get it on Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Let's get straight to Baroness Claire Fox, Director of the Academy of Ideas. Claire, very good morning to you. Great to be with you, Mike. Good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. This banking story is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, up until a few days ago, I don't think anybody in this country had any idea that this kind of activity was going on. But I was talking to David Bull the other night on the talk and, and we know that Christina Jordan's had problems as well. Have you ever encountered anything like this?
4: Well, actually, um, Henrik um, and I—we were both MEPs for the Northwest—and we mysteriously had our very—we we were very goody-two-shoes, by the way. Mm. We we put all the money that we got from the European Union for our office into a separate bank account, a right. Metro bank account, because we wanted to be transparent and open. Nobody else did it, but we did. Right. And mysteriously, they just closed the bank account down. Um, last at uh, the end of our tenure, but it was before we'd left the European
3: Union. Right. Finally, and, and did, they, and did they, they give an explanation or did not they bother?
4: Absolutely refused to explain it. Right. And, you know, it's like, in, you know, we, we therefore had to put the money into our private accounts, even though we kept the account separately and used it for a conference uh, called Change Politics for Good in Stockport to, because we wanted to say, what have we done as MEPs? Right. But they just wouldn't explain it. And of course what we now discover is that this is quite has been quite a regular thing i think what happened to christina jordan is an indication that these things happen and you're a bit embarrassed you don't tell people oh my personal bank accounts been passed down it's only now that it's come out but when you say people didn't know just so that the viewers and listeners know i put forward a number of amendments to the financial services bill last year Mm. on this very question because of what happened to paypal with the free speech union um, and so on. I started looking at it and I then put in an amendment saying that the government should ensure that people don't have their bank accounts or any of the financial services closed down because of values. Because I noticed that when I looked at the small print of all banks, they say we can close your bank accounts if you don't agree with these values. Mm. They then give the usual list of values. And I realized, my God, I could have any bank account closed down at any time.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us have started going, blimey, Um, I hope they uh, haven't seen what I said about that or haven't seen what I said about this. But, you know, one of the things we discovered yesterday um, is that all of these banking organisations seem to have signed up to Stonewall's kind of um, guidelines for uh, gender ideology and, and gender guidance. And without really any of us who have bank accounts being asked if that's okay with us.
4: Exactly. And it's also the case that Nat West, for example, is still a third owned by the government, but they've signed up. So what we've got here is a situation where banks are competing mm. to be as trans friendly and trans allies as possible. Yeah. And just to note that none of us who are gender critical are anti trans people. Be what you want, dress how you want. Right. I don't care, right? right? However, I am not gonna have enforced pronouns imposed on me i'm not going to use the stupid language that erases women where i have to say chest feeding and pretend mm. a biological and material reality are different than they are and yet somehow this has come in as a major focus of banks now we've seen this taking over the whole corporate world but we did know already from that scandal with halifax where there was that where your pronouns, mm. you know, are, 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 yes. pronouns on. And if you remember, the social media guy on on so, on Twitter when there was a bit of a backlash, said if you don't like it, close your account. And at the time, we all thought it was extraordinary that is a, a bank telling you to go away. Yeah, right. Because we've seen that subsequently with everything from Wix, uh, you know, the construction. Yeah, we don't want bigot shopping people. here. We don't want you lot here, right? So you then realise this is quite a widespread phenomenon. But when it comes to banking, especially in a situation where cash is increasingly hard to use, where you have to use digital services
3: in terms of finances, if you haven't got a bank account, you can't pay any bills. No. Well, also, if you haven't got a bank account, you haven't got a credit rating. And if you haven't got a credit rating, you basically don't exist as an individual. You can't do anything. Yeah, and in addition to this, there's
4: this special category that we've now we're now all familiar with, which is these PEPs, which is politically yes. exposed persons. Now, originally, when this was brought in, you could understand that they were saying that there might be some people who might be the type of people who might take dodgy money, mm. right? And the banks ought to take a look at it. Inevitably, the banks have been completely risk averse. When we discuss this again around that financial service bills. People from across the political platforms, I mean, you know, Labour, Lib Dem, Mm. Green, all sorts, had had problems with this, which is the banks don't need to tell you that you're being treated as a PEP. They can then stop members of your own family getting a mortgage or put their bank accounts out. And that's what we heard from Nigel Lawson, who we discovered his Down syndrome daughter was not able to open a bank account or he wasn't able to open Mm. a bank account for her because her Her grandfather was Nigel Lawson. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, but was was that because Nigel Lawson was a Tory uh, or was that because Nigel Lawson was in some way more exposed to a foreign interest than anybody else? It's not very clear, is it?
4: I think it's the perfect storm of both the adoption of the woke values, to Mm. use that term, and the PEP, which is effectively to assume that everybody in political life is dodgy and prone to be bought off. Because actually it has happened, as I said, to Lib Dems and Labour. You know, they're not Nigel Lawson types. It's happened to a lot of people. Mm. And they can't get the bank to explain it. They just simply close down accounts or won't deal with you. So I think that this is something the government has to really address very quickly. This politically exposed person, by the way, the inference is that you're dodgy because you're money laundering. You're doing something... You know, and immediately you're on the defensive, yes. right? You immediately think, oh, God, I don't want anyone to think that I'm doing anything illegal right. or anything but also like in the also
3: in the wake of the banking crisis, and, and as you say, we are still part owners of NatWest, so they should be bloody careful what they do uh, in our name, quite frankly. Um, as far as the money laundering aspects of life go, you know, I've heard stories from people who said, you know, I was trying to buy a house and my mother-in-law wanted to lend me 30,000 quid, but the mortgage company wouldn't accept it because I couldn't prove the money hadn't come via money laundering. It's like, it's come from my mother-in-law. You know, she's not actually the head of a crime family. She's got some money saved in a savings account, and she's giving it to me to help me buy a house. What's the problem? But these these money laundering laws have become really stringent. Uh,
4: Well, stringent, but also irrationally applied. I mean, you know, you say you're the home of common sense. I wish there was a bit more of it. Yeah, I I mean, it's absolutely perfectly sensible to keep your eye out for somebody who's kind of doing gun running, you know, drug money or whatever. I don't want the banks to be completely irresponsible, but at the same time that they're being overly uh, risk averse in that nature, or they're spending all their time telling you to go away if you don't use the correct pronouns. You know, I made the point about Halifax. I mean, Halifax bank might say they're not going to do business with you. The truth is, you can't find anyone who works for Halifax Bank mm. with a pronoun badge a badge or otherwise, because they keep closing down the yeah. Halifax branches.
3: Yeah. So they're not actually doing their core job. Well, funnily enough, talk about yeah. money laundry, right? I was actually in a Halifax bank a few years ago, probably two or three years ago. I had to go in and actually see somebody for some reason or other. I couldn't access some, yeah. some aspects of my business account. And uh, there's a guy next to me putting some cash in, 5,000 quid. Um, now if you had said to me that looks a bit dodgy i would have said yep it does look a bit dodgy the woman behind the counter said i have to ask you where this money's come from and he goes i sold a boat and she went right okay um she said you were here last uh, week and you also said you sold a boat last week and he said yeah i sell a lot of boats and he was clear it was clearly drug money it was clearly cash that he'd, he'd got together uh, from from doing what you might call criminal activity but they took it anyway
5: But now they're shutting
3: down bank accounts of perfectly legitimate people because they don't think um, saying a woman can't have a penis is dangerous. Well, we can't let
4: the Bank of England get away with anything
3: either. Because it was
4: only last week that we heard that the Bank of England have also developed this extraordinary as part of the pride endless month that seems to have gone on for a year.
6: Yeah.
4: Um, They announced their particular uh, version of being a trans ally, which again had all of the usual stuff in it. This is the Bank of England. We're in the middle of an inflation crisis. These are the people who created money to fund the lockdowns without ever challenging the government or saying, just hold on, is this a sensible plan? These are the people who have effectively, artificially created a situation where interest rates were low for all the wrong reasons. Mm. Now they're spiked up. They take no responsibility for it. And we discovered that the main project they've been involved in is reassessing every single Bank of England policy to make sure that it's gender-friendly.
3: Unbelievable. You can't
4: (laughs) make it up. And, and gender neutral.
3: And we've got, to, we've got to take a quick break. But, I mean, let me leave you with this thought. You know, if Stonewall want to be that interested in banking, why doesn't Stonewall just open a bank and they can only have customers that they agree with and let it be that and then let everybody else get on with their lives? Claire Fox okay. is here, director of the Academy of Ideas. We're going to talk about the NHS. We're going to talk about a great many other things. Maybe some cake as well. And I'm not talking about Boris and Partygate either. This is Talk TV.
5: Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Prime Minister's questions today, but not in the company of Rishi Sunak and Sir Keir Starmer, because Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, is attending, I dare say Keir Starmer probably is as well, uh, a service at Westminster Abbey for the NHS. Apparently, uh, it's the 75th birthday of the NHS, as it may not have escaped your notice, um, and they're so revered in this country uh, that it's time for us to celebrate with a church service, almost as if it's a religion. Weird, isn't it? Uh, How about this from Tony in Barrow and Furness? Mike, i got a letter saying they will not see me by the eye department for diabetics because I missed an appointment. So when I rang the booking department, I was told, oh, it was never sent. So I rang them this morning and they still won't see me, uh, even though I told them it wasn't sent. As I have cancer and I'm awaiting a transplant, I open NHS letters religiously. The problem with the NHS is that it simply isn't fit for purpose. Claire Fox is here, uh, Baroness Fox, Director of the Academy of Ideas. I mean, you know, I'm all for the good parts of the NHS. I'm all for saying that the NHS is a, a good idea, but it really isn't working at the moment. And and to have um, Stephen Barclay, the Health Secretary, saying what it needs is evolution, not revolution, I'm not sure he's right about that.
4: Well, I've always been a bit of a revolutionary, Mike, so I'm on the <laughs> revolution side on this one. Um the truth is, is, is that we don't need to be defensive about this. The National Health Service was a fantastic, brilliant innovation mm. in its day. Yeah. And for many years, it served many of us well. And many of the people who are um, suffering at the moment with severe uh, problems like cancer or, I mean, you can't beat when you're getting good treatment. Do you know what I mean? Like, there can be fantastic things. We all know that. And a lot of the staff work hard. We know all of this. But as you've rightly pointed Mm. out, to be in a situation where we have to be reverential and pray to about for the NHS makes me feel very queasy. Because we have had revealed that over recent years, this organisation doesn't work. Mm. And we've got to be honest about that. That's not an insult to the people who staff it. We're not having a go. This is not some ideological attack based on I'm free market. I'm not this. I'm not that. Why don't we be honest? And so when people, I mean, even, you know, Tony Blair might say it, and I don't like him much, says let's start from scratch or we need to really have
3: a... Well, he says it's got no future unless it is radically reformed. And I think he's right. I
4: think he's right. He's absolutely
3: right. And I think it just needs to be... Root and branch needs to
4: be looked at. Now, in the interim, some of the the proposals that have been put forward... You know, for staffing and so on. I mean, you can't just scrap it overnight. Yeah. Obviously, God, changing the NHS will make you know Brexit look like a tea party. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's going to be a big deal. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't aspire to have this completely relooked at. And everybody that you'll talk to, many of them who are very, you know, they're not they're not people who would normally slag off the UK. Will tell you that practically anywhere in the world, you can get a better health service yes that's the truth of the matter people keep saying to me god i've got so much better service here there and yonder that it's over bureaucratized it's absolutely unable to distinguish between important priorities and unimportant ones and just as we've been talking about the banks we know that they're completely politicized with yeah. all of this nonsense on uh, equality diversity and inclusion mm. which takes time and staff and it shouldn't take anything at all. It shouldn't be there at all.
3: Well, that's it. We Why? know that 48% of the people employed by the NHS, and there's over a million of them, um, are not clinically involved. They're not involved in actual day-to-day medic- medicinal jobs. They're involved in management. They're involved in net zero coordination. They're involved perhaps in, in some of the admin. And of course you need administration. But it's, not, it's like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. I was hearing the other day from somebody, there are something like 50% of the national trusts Uh, the health trust in this country, that still work only on paper. They don't do anything digitally. You know, the whole thing needs radical updating. We don't, they don't even work. I mean, we've got a situation
4: where basically hospitals don't effectively work over weekends. No. I mean, obviously there are staff there, but you can't see a consultant. There's a kind of time management problem that you're not allowed to interfere with Mm. because it's uh, terms and conditions and, uh, you know, practice from the past. It's got to be completely changed because if you have to wait eight hours in A&E to see someone to say it's not that serious, that's because people only go there in desperation because they can't get a GP appointment. They're wasting time, but you should be able to see someone in the first hour to say, actually, you're all right, go home, you know, or have an aspirin. There's all sorts of things that anyone in your home of common sense could work out. But I just think at the moment... This reverential approach means that you ring fence it off. You're not allowed to talk about substantially what's wrong, Mm. and I think that if if lockdown did nothing else for us in this country, it showed us that the NHS was not something that should not be criticised because they did turn themselves into a COVID-only service. Mm. Many people are suffering the consequence of that, and people are more prepared to be critical. and I hope. We have a bit more courage and bravery in the political glass now. Yeah, I'd like to, say, to be
3: I'd like to see that. Final one for you, um, Claire, the most ridiculous story so far of the week, and there's been quite a lot, uh, the Nutty fruit cakes at TFL. Apparently, uh, they've banned a poster for a West End musical called Tony and Tina's Wedding because, wait for it, um, it's got a cake in it. All right, I saw this in the sun. Unbelievable. <laughs> right, so... I mean, this is, this is, by the
4: way, allegedly to do with public health. Right. So, first of all, they've got no sense of humour. That company, by the way, the theatre company, spent, I think it was, you know, tens of thousands of pounds on their advertising campaign. Mm. This would do because we're trying to post-lockdown get the theatres back and right. running. This looks like a great, fun musical that you'd want to go to to cheer yourself up. Yeah. And there's, guess what? A picture of a broken wedding cake because there's something wrong with the marriage. That's the idea. Yeah. And that somehow... They think we're such idiots and they think we're like animals. You know, we'll see a wedding cake and all we want to do is eat and scoff our faces. Yeah. full. this is bad for our health. They have decided in their wisdom we shouldn't be able to see said wedding cake. Yes. In case we become obese. This is the kind of um, patronizing, condescending nonsense that makes me hate TFL. But actually, if anything, makes me want to go and you know, I don't know, have a pint, have a fag and eat lots of wedding cake. And yeah. I don't even like wedding cake.
3: No, exactly. I mean,
4: they just treat us so badly. Also,
3: if they'd care that much about what people are eating, why do they allow shops, as I know many uh, tube stations around London have shops in them uh, which sell food? You know, yes. it doesn't really yes. make any sense. If you want to well, be that well, draconian... Don't give
4: them ideas. No, that's it. true.
3: That's true. But, you know, but if they, they want to be, they, that, they're they're trying know, trying to be that to draconian, they better shut the Marks and Spencers at Green Park because you can get into it from the tube. <laughs> anyway, okay. good to see you, Claire. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Claire Fox, Director at the Academy of Ideas. Very sensible woman. Baroness Fox, of course. It makes you feel good that there are people like her in the House of Lords. Uh, there are other people in the House of Lords who are much less amiable uh, and much less use, I must tell you. Uh, we may get into that a bit later on uh, in the show. But coming next, though, Stephen Doral is going to join us. He's the Chair uh, of the NHS Confederation um, and, of course, a former. Secretary of State for Health uh, uh, himself as well. We'll find out from him, the state of the NHS at 75. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Right here on the Home of Common Sense, the place to get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Uh, Stephen Dorrell is here with us, former chair of the NHS Confederation, uh, former Secretary of State uh, for Health as well, of course, under John Major's government uh, back in the day when the NHS was probably under a little less strain uh, before COVID, before the population explosion, uh, and before the sort of invention of wokery, which seems to have infected everything in this country, from banking to football uh, to um, now the NHS. As well, and the schools. Don't forget, by the way, if your kids are not going to school today and you're sitting at home watching us on TV, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I'm sorry to say that the teachers are not only on strike today, but they're on strike on Friday as well. They've obviously learned something from the railway unions uh, because presumably they'll say on Thursday uh, that because they're on strike on Wednesday and Friday, uh, they can't come in on Thursday because they're too busy recovering from striking or something. Um, let's talk to Stephen Dorrell. Our 75th anniversary of the NHS. We've got loads of you who want to talk to me about things that have happened to you. Uh, things that have happened uh, recently uh, with the NHS and how they're dealing with you. Of course, we know that parts of the NHS are brilliant. Of course, we know that people in the NHS uh, are very, very good at what they do. However, I think collectively, you'd have to admit, and I don't know whether Stephen will agree with me, uh, that it isn't working terribly well at the moment. Stephen, a very good morning to you.
7: Morning, Mike. Uh, Uh, Look, there's lots wrong with the health service. Of course, that's true. It's not as easy as it should be for people to get care as and when they need it in a timely way, whether it's from the GP or getting into the emergency department of hospital or getting off a waiting list into planned care. All of those are pressures. You said that uh, it's worse now uh, than it was uh, back in the day when I was secretary of state. Uh, it never felt comfortable then either, right. so I don't think we should ever imagine that there was a golden era we can look back to. No, but, but
3: I possibly. think I think the difference now is that there's a much bigger a number of people using it. Um, it does employ an awful lot of people, and it is still recovering from its own self harm. I'd have to say during COVID.
7: Well, I'm not sure the health service is. I'm not sure why you describe it as self harm. I think the health service response to COVID is part of the thing that most people in the country would regard as uh, as having been uh, re- reflected the values of the health service and an important no,
3: I element of public service. No, I totally disagree because what happened during COVID was that the NHS effectively closed down for everything except for COVID. People who had cancer were not diagnosed. I have happened to have spoken to some people who have called me to say that because they weren't diagnosed with cancer, uh, they are now going to die as a result of getting stage four um, sort of a diagnosis too late for anybody to do anything. People couldn't go and see their GPs. People were discouraged from going to hospital uh, unless they had COVID. And I think that was a mistake.
7: Well, at the time... Uh, the view taken by the vast majority, and there's obviously a committee looking at this now, so we'll have a considered view in the fullness of time. Uh, At the time, uh, the view was that if people simply continued to use the health service in the way that they had done previously, we would have ended up with the same issues uh, within core NHS as we, in fact, experienced in social care, not dealing, uh, expecting people to be able to turn up in in the context of vulnerable people uh, with COVID would have made that situation, I think, significantly worse. And uh, whether that's right or wrong, Mike, I think we should respect the fact that before the uh, vaccine was developed, uh, NHS staff, like social care staff, Put their lives on the line in order to do the best they could for the people who were relying on them. Yeah, their I services.
3: get, I get that. I'm not, I'm not uh, complaining about the people who worked in the hospitals themselves. I'm talking about the administrators because I've been for a long time a critic of NHS and the way it's managed, not because of governmental interference, but because of the NHS administrators themselves. You know, the NHS is responsible for how the NHS runs, and I'm told very reliably by a lot of people that work in hospitals that a great impediment to progress are the consultants, the people who don't want anything to change, the people who don't really like uh, being scrutinised too heavily and like to think that they're the sort of lords of the manor. Well, it was Tony Blair,
7: wasn't it, who said that he bore the uh, scars on his back from the forces of conservatism. That's nothing unique to the health service about that, because small C conservatism uh, Blair was talking about. Uh, And yes, it's absolutely true that if we're going to take full advantage of New medicines, of digital technology, of new ways of treating people—that that means new ideas about how technology is used, how uh, uh, health is ident, how the causes of ill health are identified, and how we act to avoid avoidable incidents of ill health. We're yes. not as good as we should be at that. I completely
3: agree no, with that. No, and we haven't been good at it for a very long time. And I would challenge anybody to tell me uh, that in a lot of cases, particularly a lot of health authorities, that they've actually modernised it much since since your day, uh, in the 1990s. Because I hear people all the time saying to me that a lot of health authorities are still working on paper only, um, sort of, you know, sending letters to people, you know, sending notes inside, you know, uh, the, the the actual hospital itself. They don't use email they, you know, they close at weekends. I mean, I walk past Guy's Hospital every single day of the week. Um, and if, I'm, if I happen to be working on a bank holiday, there's literally nobody there. Um, you know, people are calling for scanning uh, operations to be around the clock 24-7. We now live in a 24-7 world. Why can't all of that be taken on board? The answer is nobody wants to change anything.
7: Well, uh, yeah. Uh, so... Can I stand back from it for a second? You sure. use the word literally nobody there in Guy's Hospital yeah. on a bank holiday. That's simply not true. Well, That's nobody, nobody there
3: to the, to the naked eye walking past, whereas normally hundreds of ambulances waiting where there's people on wheelchairs activity, there's nobody outside the hospital. That's what I mean. But,
7: but if, if your core point is that the health service needs to be uh, more adaptable, better at identifying opportunities mm-hmm. for early intervention, preventing illness, Getting engaged with uh, somebody where illness starts to develop earlier in the in the de- in the development of the condition. I don't think you'd find many people in the health service who disagree with that. First yeah. point. Second point. Uh, I also think we should uh, sometimes ministers, actually, including Sajid Javid yesterday. The irony of Sajid Javid's speech was that he himself is responsible for the latest reorganisation of the management structures of the health service, which I actually think. Uh, is a step in the right direction. It's endorsed by both Labour and my own party, the Liberal Democrats. And the reason it's endorsed is that instead of having hospitals as one silo, GPs as another silo, pharmacists and so on, uh, the, the new structures are intended to bring them together with social care, with other public services that influence people's health. If you only fund the health service in a community and you don't fund social care and you don't fund social housing, what happens is that people get iller than they need to. That's bad for them. And they end up in the hospitals. And then we wonder why we can't cope with the demand in the hospitals. We need to think of public services in a more joined-up way. And actually, the irony is this government has put in place the structure designed to deliver exactly that objective.
3: Yes. But, I mean, everybody who ever talks about reforming the NHS talks about it as if nobody's ever thought about it before, as if they've literally had it just land in their lap and go, oh, it's not working very well, maybe we should do something. You know, well, for heaven's sake, you know, consecutive governments from the beginning of this century have done things. But whatever they have done, um, they've ended up with a worse NHS service now than probably there's ever been. I mean, even the NHS calls it a crisis. So let's not be too glib about the fact that it's all fine. And maybe it just needs a little tweak here and there. It needs radical reform. I mean, we've got the worst cancer death rates per 100,000 people of most Western countries. We've got £180 billion going in. And we've only got something like uh, three doctors per 1,000 people, which is also much lower than many other countries. We've got Health spending per person, lower than many other countries. So where's all the money going? I'll tell you where it's going. 50% of it's going on non-clinical jobs.
7: Well, no. uh, so I agree with your view that we need to be uh, to think in a more long-term way. We need to focus on the more effective use of the, of the resources that are available. But, you know, we're celebrating today the 75th anniversary of the Foundation of the Health Service. What people probably don't know, no reason why they should, actually, is that it's the 70th anniversary of the first committee that was established by a government because they thought they couldn't afford to maintain the model of the NHS. Mm. It's been going on since the foundation of the health service, is this view that somehow we need to tear it all up and start again. I, I don't agree with Steve Barclay about everything by a long way, but I do agree with what he said in The Times this morning, which is that what's required is evolution, not revolution. If you tear it up and start again, what you end up with is a whole lot of cost with very little benefit. Actually, the health service has delivered improved uh, life, uh, life expectancy. It's delivered huge range of new treatments that were unimaginable 75 years ago. Uh, that doesn't mean it can't be improved. Of course it can. Mm. And, and we—it has to be more flexible and more open to change. Yes. But we shouldn't. We should beware of arguing that somehow it's all broken. I don't believe that's true.
3: It's not all broken, but much of it is, and much of it can be solved very simply. And one man's revolution is another man's evolution. So I wouldn't call it, for example, a revolution to tell um, doctors that they can't work in the private sector at the same time as working in the NHS. Uh, if they want to be private, they should be private. If they want to be pa- well, NHS, that, uh, they should respect, be NHS.
7: With respect, Mike. And Aaron Bevan tried to do that and decided that it wasn't that that way you wouldn't deliver the objectives of the health service. Actually, instead of thinking of public and private as somehow at war with each other, shouldn't we forget who owns what and focus on joining up the different bits? The health service has always been a public-private partnership. Pharmacy has a community pharmacy. Of course. Unfortunately, though,
3: people on the left will say that the Tories are trying to sell it off. I mean, I was listening to Ed Vasey last night on first edition uh, on this very channel, and he was saying that Tony Blair did a very good thing by bringing in private companies in certain health authorities while he was prime minister uh, to clear the backlog of waiting lists and it worked very well but the people who were against it were the trade unions and the bma and the doctors and they didn't like it because they were more efficient than the nhs and that's what you're up against and we might as well admit that there is an ideological block inside the nhs which does not want radical change of any kind and wants to maintain the nhs as the kind of darling of the left
7: well, actually, as it happens, Tony Blair, as you may know, has been speaking about exactly that subject again today. And I think he as uh, uh, so often. He talks a huge amount of sense on this subject. It's, it's a phrase I use often from him. What matters is what works. And uh, the, the health service, I say again, has always been a public-private partnership. That was how it was established by Anar and Bevan wasn't necessarily what he wanted to do, but it's what he concluded was the best way of delivering his objectives in the circumstances... That he was dealing with. I think that remains true today.
3: It does. But we are now in a very different place. You know, the, the world that Anir and Bevan um, lived in is very different to the one that you and I live in now. No, and the, and the Britain of today is a very different place to, to the Britain of post-war uh, <laughs> but Europe.
7: I agree with that, Mike. But isn't it ironic that one of the things we're agreeing, we're, and we're also agreeing about, is that Bevan was right to say that the NHS would deliver its objectives best if it was structured as a public-private partnership, which is what he did, and what you and I both yeah. say no, now. No, listen, I'm not, against, the
3: I'm not against private partnerships at all. I just think it's unreal that you can walk into a, a doctor's surgery uh, and be told that you can't have an operation on the NHS because there's a waiting list of nine months. But if you want to go private, the same doctor will do it for you today at three o'clock. I think that's wrong. I agree
7: wrong. with that. Yeah, I agree with that, which is why we should be ensuring that there are... that. There is that the the health service uses the full range of capacity that's available to meet the demands that are available on the health service. But uh, I I suspect you and I would also agree uh, that we can't define ourselves as living in a free society if we're not also free, to spend money on our own. No, health absolutely. No, I, I, yeah,
3: no, I'm not it. arguing that. I'm arguing that the two things should be separated as far as the doctors are concerned. But this is—we could go on all day with this, but maybe we should. But we've got to go. Thank you very much, Stephen Dorrell, uh, former chair of NHS Confederation, former health secretary, of course, under John Major. We agree on some things. The point about the NHS is that nobody agrees about all of it. But we can all agree. I would have thought, listening and watching this show, uh, that it is in a bad place and it needs fixing. We're going to talk about that some more coming up with your calls right here on Talk TV. The
5: home of common sense, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
3: Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Lots of you have got plenty to say about the NHS and plenty to say about how the NHS has been treating you and your loved ones over the course of recent weeks and months, because of course we all know basically what is really going on here. £180 billion is going in uh, through the front door, Uh, an awful lot of it is being wasted. It's as simple as that and the sooner that the NHS admits it, the sooner that the people who think the NHS is doing a great job, admit it, the sooner we can all move on uh, and start actually spending the money correctly. Because there is no doubt that there isn't enough money in the till. There is plenty of money in the till, but they're wasting an awful lot of it on climate change, on uh, net zero aficionados, on controllers of money, on people who want to make sure that the diversity regiments are all in place, the people that have net zero coordinators, the people that have, you know, Twitter aficionados, the people that come in to do marketing, the people that do all the jobs that are not necessary... Inside of the NHS, in terms of the actual clinical treatment of people, that's what needs to be fixed. And that's the only chance that the NHS has got of surviving another 75 years. Because if it doesn't reform, uh, it will for sure absolutely just die out. And people will go to private sector accommodations because they'll need to. They won't be able to get anything done on the NHS. And that is a massive problem. Another big uh, reform place that's required is of course the police in this country we're going to speak now to Nusrit Metab uh, former Scotland Yard superintendent because the Home Office are saying that they're going to overhaul the difficulty of rogue police officers right because the front page of the Times today has got this story in which they say you know the problems are that we're getting better at rooting out the rogue officers but the problem is is that the procedures that we have to jump through the hoops that we have to jump through mean that we can't get rid of them Quickly enough. There's a couple of other stories doing the rounds that we'll talk to her about as well. Nuzra, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. You've talked to me many times about the rogue police and how difficult it is to to sort of weed them out of various different police services. We've seen some terrible stories over the past sort of 24 months, I suppose you would say, last couple of years. Um, You know, Charing Cross Police Station, the the terrible uh, case of uh, of the murder of Sarah Everard by Wayne Cousins, uh, the terrible case of David Carrick, uh, the the sort of uh, repeat rapist. And now we've got stories in Humberside where there have been nine officers sacked over deplorable behaviour I mean, it looks as though to the outside world, and I'm sure this is the wrong uh, way to to, to view it, that the police is literally full of perverts, rapists and criminals.
8: Well, not all police officers are that, Mike. We know that uh, only it's been reported over and over again. So it's heightened in terms of that. There are thousands of good officers doing a very good job. However there is a problem. I've talked about it many times on your show. Mm. It's been reported, you've highlighted some of those issues. And I welcome this uh, step by the Home Office to rehaul that system. And I think Mark Rowley has many times has said that he feels the frustration that they're not given that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, The misconduct system is one of the biggest things along with vetting. It takes 400 days initially to investigate a complaint if a member, uh, if anybody member of the public or staff internally make that complaint. And what's happened, because it was a national system, there was no um, independence, if you like, and it was changed. Uh, I don't know exactly when, Mike, but it was changed to bring in, um, you know, barristers to sit in on these uh, uh, misconduct claims. And from what the Home Office is doing now, they're putting chief constables back in charge giving them the autonomy to be able to root these people out you know if if a person is going through misconduct as i said it can take 400 days and they're still on a pay even if they get you know they go into court and they've been charged they still stay on a pay pay that's been given by the taxpayer so hopefully all these will now be looked at and we'll have a streamlined system where if you if you're found guilty of a misconduct gross misconduct, you're out the door straight away,
3: yeah, I mean the problem I suppose is that the way that it's being described by uh, by Sir Mark Rowley is that the process already at the moment takes about a year to get somebody out, and I think all of us would say that might take that might be too long, but at the same time you can't kick people out unless you know that something is actually true can you
8: well, absolutely but That whole system is to investigate. They can do the investigations very quickly. I know people that are on misconduct now, gross misconduct. It's already been a year. The investigations are clumsy. The investigations are taking a long time because people leave, they go on annual leave, there's shortage of staff, there's lack of experience. All those things have to look at because you've also got to think about the mental health and well-being of the person Mm. that's on that end. They're waiting a year, year and a half And at the end of it, sometimes it's no case to answer. So in terms of that, I totally agree. But you're right, investigation has to be done. But they need to put clear parameters and timelines for an investigation to be done. Because these can run for a long, long time and it's unnecessary. So make it more streamlined, be able to get rid of these people and start to take back control of uh, the investigations.
3: And the other two things that, that you've sometimes touched upon uh, that cause these problems are, one, this kind of culture of secrecy, this culture of sort of, um, uh, you know, whistleblowers not being encouraged to say anything because they get um, sort of blackballed or excised from the, from, the, from the force that they're actually working inside. And also, um, those who come into the force are not being properly kind of screened when they're being interviewed for the job. We, he- we heard in many cases, some of them during a lockdown, not even actually being seen, when they were being interviewed, just doing it on Zoom.
8: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the vetting process that really does need to be looked at. Again, there needs to be a consistency of standard. Each force is doing what it likes. It has a different appetite for risk. Some don't, you know, the online interviews from beginning to end. Mm. That now needs to be the next thing that that needs to be looked at. And there needs to be direct action quickly. But I'm so glad that this misconduct system is going to be looked at. My only concern is how and what is going to take its place, because it's all very well looking at it and trying to replace the system, which is really clumsy and lets down officers and the public. But I also hope that it's, you know, it's, Replaced with a better system and not just a rehashing of the old system.
3: Mm, Absolutely right. And as far as um, the way the police are kind of viewed now by the public, they're at a sort of all-time low in terms of trust. How do they get that back?
8: Very slowly. And these, you know, this is the first uh, step, I suppose, to showing people that actually we're making that change and we are serious about it. But as you know, regaining that trust in... Here's a cool fact.
2: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
8: Confidence, which has been lost over decades, isn't going to be easy. But one of the things that I will say that actually policing can do is go back to basics. Mm. And by that, I mean, is reinvest in neighborhood policing, where you police officers are visible and they're approachable. Now, the Tony Blair Institute um, actually um, sent some figures out. They did a survey and they've asked people what their views were on the police and how they viewed them. Only 50% of the public said that they had trust in in, in policing. Mm -hmm. I think they were a second one up from the government, which was 36%, as it all, I suppose. So for me, it's about taking on what the public say, and it's about visibility, approachability, and slowly you will regain that trust and confidence. And one of the things that I think will really help is for policing as a whole to get behind the National Race Action Plan and um, for the Met in particular, because obviously I'm in London, so uh, it's the Met. Yeah, They need to start to take the London um, Race Action Plan seriously and invest resources properly. No what they've done is they've um, adopted that plan, but they haven't actually put full-time staff in and they've asked for volunteers. That doesn't show commitment. Those are the things that Londoners and across, because this is a national problem, it's not just a London problem, The people will start to take, you know, sit up and take notice. Let's go back to basics. Let's invest in neighbourhood policing.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. Nusrik, thanks very much indeed. Nusrik Mittal, former Scotland Yard superintendent there, talking about the dreadful state uh, of some of the police forces in this country. Humberside in particular, officers sacked over incredibly deplorable behaviour involving prostitution, involving the sale of drugs that they were doing, uh, involving the kind of spying on women, uh, getting undressed. Just unbelievable stuff going on inside a police station, by the way, as well. We'll take calls on that as well. But right now, we're talking about the NHS today. And not only at my surgery do you have a waiting time to see a gp now you've got a six week wait for a phone call says leslie let's talk to jenny who's in high wickham hi jenny hello there mike hi, hi thanks for taking my
0: call. not at all yeah i just want to say that you know i mean if you're in desperate need and i mean your life's in danger like mine was six years ago when i was involved in a very serious car accident they're absolutely world class and i mean world class i've yeah. taken to oxford and uh, i have brain surgery you know, they took out a piece of my skull and a few years later they put a piece back. on. So Formula One now. They're putting the same stuff that used in a Formula One <laughs> car. I tell my husband, you've got a
3: Formula One wife. A $6 million woman. That's great. <laughs> that's,
0: oh, that's right. That's exactly right. And so absolutely world class. I can't speak highly enough about them. And they also saved my life when I was a baby from changing all my blood at birth because the race is negative, which... Right. Uh, they they know about that now, but the baby before me died, but that was sort of over 50 years ago, Mm. so we'll go into that now. But I do think they need to clamp down a bit on the GPs and yeah. stop them from uh, just going off and working privately. But that's why you can't get the point with the GP if you need one. I mean, I, I work in alternative health myself so I make damn sure that I just have homeopathy. That's what I do. I've done it for donkey years. And that's, that's my tip to everyone. See a homeopath, a registered homeopath one who's properly insured and all the rest of it. Yeah. That's what I do, and I did it before the accident, car accident, I I still do it. But anyway, you know, I mean, if these GPs are sort of working, you know, part-time privately, that's why they're not around. Right. Because they're they're doing private. I think they need to at least have a period of time after they've been trained when they have to work solely and full-time for the um nhs but it can't be right
3: jenny can it that you can see a a private doctor but you can see the same doctor privately tomorrow who says to you that you can't have an operation for nine months and sometimes Sometimes using the same facilities
0: i had to have you know i had to pay for my rehab privately because i couldn't get enough rehab off the nhs when i came out of hospital after you know five months or whatever it was so, you know, luckily I was able I was able to do that. So I had to pay privately and I had to, um, rehab for a long time at home. You know, she would come to the house and sort me out and whatnot, teach me to walk again. Um, you know, I'm sort of walking now, but there we are. Um, so you have to pay privately. And what I would say is, you know, you need some sort of, I think we need to have some sort of system whereby we have to pay a bit. When I lived and worked in France, because I'm a fluent French speaker, um, you know, you had to pay if you need see the doctor i very yeah. rarely needed to but you know um you know y- you pay same in australia yeah. when i when i i didn't work in australia my other half my husband he worked in australia i went as the wife and you know the, the firm paid paid for both of us and i only have one child at the time Paid for the baby if you needed if you needed care right. and that, that's that's what has to happen, I'm afraid? It you know, does. We need and to I'm sure that something. there
3: would be, presumably there would be, you know, provision for people who couldn't of afford course. to go. Because of the course, problem right? I think you we have at the moment... their
0: prescriptions. Yeah. You know, you know, not everyone has to pay for their prescriptions if, if they go to the doctor. I mean, I've, I've never ever had that now because I'm a homeopath and I only use homeopathy. But if you need it, it is there. And I've had so many drugs, I couldn't tell you what, because I had no idea, I was comatose. Yeah. You know, when, well, after the car accident. If you need it, they're there. But, you know, I really do think it's got to be a bit more. You're going to have to start paying a bit for this. Yeah. And people are going to have to have insurance, you know, like in some other countries where you have to have some insurance. I mean, you just have to. Yeah. Um, one of one of my daughters, I mean, she's in her 20s now, you know, she had to have very, very serious um, dental care. And mm. she was crying on the phone to me. And, Mum, what should I do? I said, look, I said, you know, you've got, you know, your firm, who you work for, she's got a blooming good job. She's first-class Oxford. Yeah. You know, I mean that, first-class degree from Oxford. I said, you know, you must have some sort of private insurance. She hadn't even thought of doing yeah. it. No. She said, she got all that dental treatment. Oh, I can't remember what she had, some sort of um, root canal or something. Right. You know, she got that paid for by her private insurance. So if you can, do it. Yes, I don't see why you
3: wouldn't. Absolutely right, and if you can't afford it, great, because it also does take the strain off the NHS. But we're sick to death, I think, um, Jenny, in all of our... Different walks of life, uh, having to pay for people uh, who have never contributed either to the system, and that's another problem. Jenny, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, We'll come back to all of you. Uh, I know many of you want to talk to me about your stories about the NHS. Uh, One here from Paul, who's tweeted in: "Uh, "My sister was uh, my sister was a sister in a Northern hospital. She told me a manager was appointed. He had no medical expertise, and he ordered a fifteen hundred pound mahogany desk for his office. The desk already in his office was adequate." What a waste of our money. Well, I think that's the kind of thing that happens all the time. And that's the kind of thing that nobody really ever finds out about. Sarah Houston coming next. She's Talk TV's royal editor. She's up in Edinburgh at St. Giles Cathedral, a beautiful church up there on the Royal Mile. King Charles uh, is going up there because he wants to uh, show off his new sword. £22,000 worth, apparently. Uh, he's got a sword. Uh, he's got a crown. He's going to be the King of Scotland. Congratulations, Charles. Uh, He's coming next.
5: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Uh, George says this, Mike, the closure of bank accounts for holding the wrong views is a bigger story than even immigration. This is the nail in the coffin of free speech. How would pensioners and those in receipt of benefits get their money? Strangely, though, migrants in the black economy could survive as long as cash isn't outlawed. And Cliff in Berkshire says a bank account is essential for modern life as more and more goes online. What will they stop you having next? Gas, electric, water? Water. Well, these are all very good questions and these are all things that have uh, puzzled and perplexed those of us who are. Uh, free speech advocates. Let's talk now uh, to Sarah Fillimore, who's a barrister, uh, also with the Fair Cop group as well. Uh, Metro Bank, we heard this morning with Claire Fox, uh, had interfered with her uh, bank accounts in the past, but they now uh, uh, reached the news this morning uh, because they've refused to open a newer business account for Our Duty, which is a group of more than 2,000 parents who believe that it is harmful for transgender children to undergo a medical transition. I'm not quite sure when this all started, but what we discovered this week earlier uh, was that. Stonewall seems to have got their hooks into many of these banks and they've sort of given them um, what can only be described as gender uh, ideology guidelines. Let's find out what Sarah makes of it. Well, Sarah, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Um, This is a very odd story. I mean, I found myself quite surprised, I don't know whether you were, uh, that this was even going on. I mean, the Nigel Farage story kind of kicked it all off, but it now appears that when you lift that particular stone, It's actually a lot worse than even Nigel Farage was alleging.
2: Oh, yeah. I don't think the words odd and surprised are really doing this justice. I tried to do a bit of research see what was happening. There's a Guardian article from 2018 that said people were having their bank accounts closed for no reason. The only reason they could think was that they their country of origin was, say, Nigeria or Iran. Yeah. And the bank trying to avoid the risk being associated with those countries. Right. But what we've got happening now appears to be really different. So I'm having lots of arguments online with people over Nigel Farage. And they say, oh, he's money laundering for the Russians or, oh, he didn't have enough yeah. money. Hrakout's account. But that can't really seem to apply to Keith Jordan and his group. And while I was having a browse on Twitter before speaking to you, I found out to my absolute shock and horror, Professor Leslie Sawyers, who is the um, Equality and Human Rights Commissioner for Scotland, has had her RSB bank account shut down after 32 years and no reasons given. So the words odd and surprise don't yeah. cut it for me. I'm actually terrified. Yeah. I bank with the NatWest, They're, they are they control our, um, the Royal Bank of Scotland. Am I going to get an email saying, you've got 60 days to find another account? I, I appreciate banks have their rules, they have their regulations, but you cannot contract out of a statute. And those of us who think that sex is real and it matters, have a protected belief. Banks just can't willy-nilly decide to cut off our accounts. I mean, just substitute, say, a black person or a gay person for a woman who believes that sex is real and it matters, and you see how appalling this is.
3: I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? Because it's an arbitrary kind of rule that they've instituted here, which is not based upon somebody's financial regularity or somebody's financial uh, business at all. It's got nothing to do with your finances. It's everything to do with uh, whether or not it's something that they agree with.
2: Well, that that means it's not arbitrary. It's very deliberate, isn't it? The journalist Stuart Campbell, who runs the Wings Over Scotland um, account, had his accounts pulled for no reason. And he's really worried because high up in the banking team is quite an influential and powerful trans woman. So just what is happening here? As as you said, bank accounts are essential. You cannot function in modern society without one. If we're being told that we may not have a bank account because our political views don't accord with the bank's political views, Mm. this is insane on every level. Banks are not there to push politics. They're there to look after money, invest it. I don't know, do what banks do involving money. We well, politics- apparently, well, lately, what,
3: what banks do involving money is mismanage it, lose it, and then expect us to bail them out, which makes this oh, even more yeah. ridiculous, particularly the NatWest Group, who are still a third owned by the taxpayer.
2: Well, exactly. This is a bank that we own, yet it is pulling the accounts for no reason of people. Uh, the only reason we can think is that these people have at some time expressed a view that sex is real and it matters. Yeah. And that seems to be enough. So where are we going with this? Mm. This is the majority view. So are we going to end up with vast sways? 90% of the British population denied a bank account. Yeah. Where is this going?
3: Well, exactly right. I mean, the Royal Bank of Scotland have issued a statement around the um, Professor Leslie Sawyer story uh, in which they say uh, that they're not able to discuss the decision uh, with you or provide you with any further information in relation to our decision-making. Um, That was what she and her husband were told. So they're not even actually obliged, it would appear, legally, to tell you why.
2: Well, these are the kind of horrors I thought we had left behind um, with the collapse of the Stasi in East Germany. It seems to be about making people non-persons, undermining them psychologically, humiliating them, casting them out. Because they don't have the right views. I thought this was something we had left behind. It, it seems that I'm wrong. I do not think banks can contract out of the Equality Act. I had an interesting conversation with an equality dis- discrimination specialist lawyer
6: right.
2: who says the problem is the Equality Act just wasn't designed for these kind of things, mm. it was designed to protect individuals. So people who are parts of groups and organisations may find it more difficult. But I certainly think the individuals like Professor Leslie Sawyer, and I assume Keith Jordan could take action as an individual. Please, please take them to court. Thousands, millions of us will give you money to fund your lawyers. We have to stop this because once our bank accounts are removed, we are utterly disabled from participating in society and objecting to this, and we must, we must all stop fiddle-faddling around. This is really, really serious. Yes. We are allowed to hold a view that sex is real and it matters. We're allowed to express it, and we're also allowed to have a bank account while we do so.
3: Yeah. And I don't know whether you know the answer to this, but I mean, what physically happens to somebody like um, Professor Sawyers uh, when they say to her, uh, we no longer wish to hold a bank account for you. What happens to the money? If, the, if there is any in that bank account, does it get put into? Because legally, this is quite an important process, it seems to me. You know, I, I remember my time in America, and I can't imagine this happening in America, uh, where the free speech actually is genuinely relatively <laughs> free compared to here. I can't imagine that they could do anything with your money. So what do they actually no. do?
2: Well, all I know, because this is such a, a unique and horrible thing, mm. I haven't heard of this happening until now, no. is I think um, Stuart Campbell was given 60 days to find another account. But the problem was he never received the email telling him to do this. So right. I think he had to sort it out in a hurry. I imagine if you don't sort out another account, they would have to put the money in some kind of protected account. I'm assuming they can't possibly take your money, but who knows? Mm. Who knows what next week is going to bring? You know, we are non-people. We are considered bigoted, hateful, inhuman. So I'm quite sure if we don't do something now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if a couple of weeks we're having a conversation about people's money disappearing. Or maybe we won't be having a conversation at all because you will be shut down.
3: Well, let's hope not. Um, We'll have to go on the underground networks and it'll be like something out in 1984. I'm wondering now whether I should go back to a few days back when I got an email from my bank saying... Um, Just a a refreshing sort of, you know, uh, reminder of the terms and conditions, because I haven't, as usual, uh, read them. Uh, So I now probably will have to go back and see what they say, because um, obviously I'm in the public eye to some extent. I say things which obviously people at the Royal Bank of Scotland certainly won't agree with. um, And certainly people in uh, Stonewall might not agree with either. So, I mean, it is a, a ridiculous situation, isn't it?
2: Yeah, Of course, they have a wide discretion. Of course, if they have evidence that you are money laundering with the Russians or the Chinese, they can do what they like. I'm definitely and they, not doing that. And they can't tell you because that would be tipping you off. But if, as I suspect, for Professor Leslie Sawyers and Keith Jordan and Stuart Campbell, the reason is we don't like your politics, then If it's right that there isn't an easy route through the Equality Act to stop this, then that in itself is very, very wrong. And the government has to step in urgently. There are the citizens are being disenfranchised by the banks who, as you say, have screwed up and taken our money to stay alive. We cannot we must not tolerate this. It is the beginning of the end for any democratic society worth living in.
3: Yeah. And also, what about their links to uh, what you might regard as countries which have questionable human rights records? For example, I don't know what their policy would be on uh, dealing with Saudi Arabia, for example, or dealing uh, with many other countries in the world, uh, which might be considered questionable uh, in all sorts of different ways. I mean, I know we know that there are sanctions against Russia. But it wouldn't surprise me at all to discover that uh, Coots Bank or NatWest or uh, Royal Bank of Scotland uh, have got, um, you know, shares in certain companies that might be considered unethical. I mean, you know, where does it all end?
2: It's the hypocrisy that really stings. You saw it with, with the Pride celebrations. They've got no problem at all in taking money Money from organizations that operate and profit in countries where gay men and women are killed by operation of the law. They don't seem to care about that. I'm quite sure the banks don't really care about the ethical considerations Mm. of dealing with those sorts of regimes as long as they are making money. Mm. This seems to be a way for them to get some bonus points to stop that small minority of people who seem to inexplicably have governments state organizations under their thumb it's a way of getting cheers and plaudits from that tiny tiny group mm. it's got to stop how have they got so much power i think well because we didn't see that it was happening a lot wow. of work was done under the scenes but now it's out there is no excuse now for ignorance individual people are coming up and saying our accounts have been closed after 40. Forty years and no reason given. Mm. We're not money launderers. We, we're not banking with coots. So what the hell is going on? Yeah. We need to know. And government, I'm afraid, now needs to step in. Yes. The bank appear to be out of control.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Sarah, thanks very much indeed. Sarah Philimore, barrister uh, and uh, member of the Fair Cop Group. Uh, keep an eye on all of this, right? And watch Sarah Philimore's Twitter. Watch our Twitter. Uh, and if you hear anything or you know anything, by all means, you know, join into the debate as well because this has got to stop. Uh, this cannot be allowed to continue Uh, we cannot have banks parading around like this virtue signaling uh, with their latest ideas of what you should be thinking as we say there's a lot of hypocrisy going on here there's an awful lot of business being done between these banks and certain countries that may not hold uh, freedom quite as highly as we do and that is a problem. Uh, We'll take some calls though coming up very shortly. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. Regarding the reform of the NHS, says Nick, we don't need an insurance system since we are already paying for the NHS via council tax. Then people who need care are slapped with care charges. So what we need to do is to get rid of all the non-medical management, get rid of all these taxes and just have a universal tax which will include council tax. So one tax to replace everything else. Make GPs work in the NHS five days out of seven and make consultants also work five days out of seven, which must include evenings and weekends, and that will sort the NHS out. It probably would, actually. Well done, Nick. This is Talk TV.
5: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until, of course, 1 o'clock. NHS birthday, 75 today. Uh, there's a Jeremy Carl special coming up, of course, at 7 o'clock tonight. You won't want to miss that. But also, uh, there is some kind of service going on down at Westminster Abbey, as if the NHS was some kind of religion. Uh, we've got Prime Minister's questions today, but one person will be missing from that. Uh, to wit, one Rishi Sunak, uh, a.k.a. the Prime Minister, as apparently he'd rather go to this service commemorating the the NHS's 75th birthday then answer questions about why the country isn't being run terribly well and in fact why the NHS isn't being run terribly well Uh, he was upbraided by Chris Bryant MP yesterday Sir Chris Bryant as he's now known uh, for not apparently attending two Prime Minister's questions in a row he's not going today and he's not going next week either because there's a NATO meeting Uh, NATO by the way seemed to think that uh, it's a good idea to put Ursula von der Leyen in charge of it really this is the woman who sold I believe wooden guns to the army in Germany when she was Defence Secretary in the German government. Uh, I don't think defence is really her strong point. It has to be said. 0344 499 Annabelle Denham joins us very shortly, Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph. Coming up later on, we will have the world of woke, of course, as well. And Peter Cardwell will be here uh, to talk us through uh, Angela Rayner versus Oliver Dowden, uh, which is not Always a great idea, but we'll see. Uh, perhaps they'll say something interesting this week. You never know. Uh, a lot of pressure on uh, the Tory party itself, though, because the new Partygate probe, heaven help us, has now begun, uh, and it now looks as though Boris Johnson is in the clear, but Bernard Jenkin is not. Annabel Denham is here. Annabelle, very good uh, afternoon to you
1: good afternoon, Mike.
3: Well, I don't know where to start, really. I mean, we'll obviously get to the banking story, uh, which is a ludicrous one, and it gets more ludicrous with every day that passes. They've also now upped the interest rates again. The mortgage rates are going through the roof. So uh, the banks, which were not very, very much uh, of a a people-friendly set of uh, people, are now even more unpopular. But let's kick things off, shall we, uh, with the Partygate Pro. Bernard Jenkin uh, looks like he might be hoisted by his own petard by attending his, uh, uh, his wife's party. I was at the talk last night saying, can you... You imagine the sort of party where it's good news when Theresa May turns up I mean it sounds pretty hideous to me
1: I think the whole thing is absolutely hideous what's interesting is that there's clearly massive public fatigue when it comes to partygate just how much more we're going to be willing mm. to hear about this I'm not sure. But let's not also forget at the same time that there are people out there who are still being penalised for their own breaches of the coronavirus rules. There are people who are still being issued with fines. My view is that that process needs to stop immediately. And those who have already been fined ought to be reimbursed, given that it's quite clear now, a number of our politicians do not appear, at least, to have been able to adhere to the very ghastly walls that they themselves set. Um, Like you say, Mike, it's absolutely, you know, a case of a politician being hoisted by his own petard. Let's, you know, let's see whether this is actually found to be true. But if it is, it's extremely uncomfortable for uh, Bernard Jenkin. Already, of course, you've had Boris Johnson calling for uh, him to resign. I think you can imagine the pressure Will just mount and mount. Um, It's going to call into question as well uh, the legitimacy of the privileges committee into Boris Johnson that precipitated his resignation from British politics. You know, this is just a story that is going to drag on and on, I'm afraid. Um, And at the moment, it doesn't look like it's going to have any very clear conclusions.
3: No, and all it does is bring more kind of ordure onto the parliamentary process and onto the parliament in general. And all MPs now, who are at a pretty low ebb when it comes to uh, the trust of the people, Um, You know, they need to be getting on with stuff. I mean, they wasted all this time with the Privileges Committee trying to chase a man out of office who was already out of office. They're now going to spend an awful lot of time talking to the police about something which really is, if anything, is only going to end up with somebody getting a £45 penalty charge notice, isn't it?
1: Yes, I think you're right. It's just going to further erode public trust in politicians and in British politics. I'm extremely uncomfortable, mind you, with the idea that MPs uh, can take on the role of judge and jury as to which other MPs who've Mm. been voted in by their electorate are allowed to remain in office. I think it's setting an extremely uh, dangerous precedent where politicians are either using the parliamentary process or perhaps you know as we're seeing in the US and increasingly in the UK the courts in order to try and stifle and upend uh, democracy and I think this is you know an immensely alarming position for us to find ourselves in as you say it seems like a massive distraction from the many 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 problems that we are currently facing now in British society and across our economy Uh, very high sticky inflation high interest rates like you mentioned in your, in your intro. We are now in the nightmare stress testing Bank of England interest rates scenario where mortgages are topping 6%. This is going to have a huge uh, impact on our property markets, on uh, people's disposable incomes. Uh, meanwhile, there are questions over whether banks are passing on some of their savings to those who have uh, bank accounts to savers us themselves themselves, you know, increasing those mortgage rates, but perhaps uh, not interested, uh, raising their interest rates for uh, savers at the same time. So all of that mess that the government needs to be uh, addressing. Of course, there's uh, the healthcare service, the more we spend on it, the less we seem to be getting out, you know, everywhere you look, every area of government policy now, it seems to be going in the wrong direction. And yet here politicians are getting wrapped up in infringements of laws that were introduced during the coronavirus pandemic and whether they're going to result in some kind of in some kind of fine. So yes, it does feel at the moment like politicians are fiddling while Britain burns, and yeah. that ought to be addressed.
3: It really should. And it's a bit like sort of playground um, antics going on around, you know, while, as you say, the sort of the, the school's burning down, you know, because it's looking now, uh, looking at some of the rates that are on offer on the mortgage market. If you want to get um, a two-year product mortgage-wise, a fixed rate for two years, that's already creeping up above 6.5%. Uh, so it won't be long, presumably, before those kind of things go up to 7%.
1: I think there's an expectation. Yes, the interest rates on mortgages are going to continue to go up over the next six months before finally, hopefully, uh, starting to come down. It's very much the expectation among economists that the Bank of England has done enough. Possibly it's actually overcorrected by raising interest rates to 5%. That inflation will indeed begin to come down, even though it has remained stubbornly high. Um, the question, of course, is whether it's going to come down enough for Rishi Sunak to manage managed to stick to at least one of the pledges that he made at the start of the year. At the time, everybody thought that, you know, he was just predicting something that was absolutely inevitable. But here we are discussing whether indeed inflation will come down below around five as he promised. Um, I think the expectation, as I say, is that it will be. um, The Bank of England seems to be clawing back some credibility now, but that's, at least in the short term, not going to help people. It's not going to help those who are coming off uh, their fixed-term rates uh, at the moment or will be in the next few months and are going to be looking at deals that are possibly two or three mm. times more. Um, you know, and all of this is is sort of a product, a hangover really from the ultra low interest rates that we had after the global financial crisis. It incentivized people to really stretch themselves when buying Property And that was exacerbated by our failure to build more homes and our housing crisis. And now that mortgage rates are going up, there, for some people, it's simply going to be unaffordable. What the government has at least done for now is resist any calls for some kind of mortgage bailout and must absolutely yeah. stick to I think that the uh, pressure for them to do something as radical as that does seem to have slightly subsided, and that's absolutely welcome. Um, you know, Discussing with banks things around repossessions and mortgage holidays it is certainly a more reasonable approach than just trying to cushion people from the impact of interest rates. I'm afraid to say that Rishi Sunak is absolutely right when he says that the point of raising interest rates is that it hurts. It stops people from going out and spending in the economy, because until demand uh, starts to come down and supply can meet it we are going to continue to see prices Mm. continue
3: to and some people will say well if the house prices are dropping as well as a result of of, of the difficulties in finding mortgages or difficulties of selling houses then that may not be a bad thing either because houses can become cheaper but you said the bank of england getting some credibility back perhaps on the financial front but not uh, on any other front because it was this week when the bank of england came out and said that uh, any gender can become pregnant to much aghast uh, remarks from all sorts of places, including here.
1: Yes, I, I was similarly uh, aghast to learn that that's what the Bank of England has been spending its time doing quite clearly, you know, it was issued with uh, this very clear mandate price stability, it was supposed to keep inflation as close to 2% as possible when it uh, went a percentage point up or, uh, or down, then yeah. it had to write a letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, it has failed. Um, and it's absolutely you know, galling to think that we might be suffering this massive economic pain. Because they've been—they've taken their eye off the ball. They've been, you know, already we know they've been asleep at the wheel. But the idea that they've just been fixating on uh, diversity, inclusion, woke issues while allowing inflation to absolutely skyrocket, while failing to raise interest rates soon enough, and of course talking about it as though it wasn't a problem, talking about it as though it was transitory when it patently isn't—yeah, that's you know immensely frustrating.
3: It really is. Stay with us if you would, Annabelle. We're just going to take a short break. Want to come back to the banking? business and why uh, they're suddenly willy-nilly deciding to start axing people's accounts on the grounds of uh, not liking what they do and what they say uh, in their lives as opposed to what their financial um, hardships may or may not be and despite whatever their financial uh, footprint may be absolutely unbelievable uh, we'll come back with annabel denham deputy comment editor from telegraph with that plus much more right here on talk tv
5: the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
3: and just before we go back to the banking kind of weirdness that's been going on uh, for the last few days, kicked off by Nigel Farage, of course, who revealed that he had had his bank account withdrawn, effectively, uh, by what it turns out to be coots. Just before we get to that, um, Annabelle, um, I'm just reading the uh, Joe Biden story today where he's basically backing Ursula von der Leyen to get the NATO job. Uh, this is a woman who I seem to remember who's now obviously uh, the head of the EU, but she's now uh, also got a bit of a history in the world of defence because she was once the defence minister i think in germany and was she not famous for buying a load of wooden rifles that she then handed out to the german army because they couldn't afford real ones
1: I don't think that the Germans could wait to get her out of her position as defence minister soon enough. Uh, She she was uh, not as effective at all running that ministry, and I think that's pretty portentous for the way in which she might approach running NATO. What's extraordinary is that it's Joe Biden who now appears to be throwing his weight Mm. behind um, the European Commission president. Um, It's, again, a, a snub to Britain. Of course, he initially he said that he wasn't happy with Ben Wallace, our defence secretary, becoming the general secretary of NATO. Now he's obviously throwing his weight behind somebody who is absolutely at the centre of the European uh, project. Now, in some ways, this isn't altogether surprising, you know, a Democrat po- uh, president will probably inevitably put Brussels before they put London, but it do- it is starting to feel as though Joe Biden will accept nothing less than Britain's complete humiliation on the yeah. world stage.
3: No, he certainly is being now called anti-British, you know, by people in the government who are not putting their names to those kind of comments. But they're basically saying he really does hate Britain. Um, and it seems as though Joe Biden is convinced, as you say, that uh, he can do everything he can to prove that there is no special relationship and there is no favour that he will do uh, to, a, to a, certainly to a conservative government. It might change with Keir Starmer in charge.
1: I think that's right. Of course, it may change if the Tories are able to cling on to power by their fingernails at the next general election and America does uh, throw its weight behind Donald Trump. Perhaps you'll see some rekindling of the special relationship. But I think we should be honest that the relationship has not really been all that special since Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And it's ju- this is just the kind of conclusion of a long period of sort of freezing relations between the UK and the US. And as you say, Mike, I don't think by Biden has gone to really, really any effort to uh, conceal his dislike of Brexit, to conceal his dislike of Britain and the British people who chose to leave the European project. Of course, uh, we had him over in Ireland over, earlier this year, making his feelings quite clear. Um, and now we've got uh, this management of NATO. But we mustn't really allow politics to come in the way of defence. It's absolutely crucial that we have the right person uh, in the job. And it, as we say from her history, it is not clear that Ursula von der Leyen is that person.
3: No, exactly right. And I mean, speaking of thinking, keeping politics out of things, you know, this ridiculous um, development in the banking sector which appears to have been kind of um, consigned to a part of our new world by Stonewall, you know, the uh, gay rights organisation, they seem to have got their hooks into all of the banks with this kind of guideline practice of, of, of how to deal with gender ideology. And um, This has all happened sort of rather under the radar, hasn't it?
1: I think it has. It's really scary stuff. I think while we have, you know, on the right, those of us who believe um, firmly in free speech have felt as though deplatforming and cancel culture had gone a little bit quiet. I don't think that the left have had that approach at all. I think that they are marching through the institutions we've seen, of course, Mm. across universities. But what I don't think anybody expected was what we are now seeing from banks in terms of blocking people from being their customers, from holding accounts with them based on their views. And there was that vicar, the Anglican vicar, who had his account closed with very little warning. Mm. And I thought that the quote from a spokesman from Yorkshire Building Society was really telling. He said, we never close savings accounts based on different opinions regarding beliefs. We uh, We only ever make the difficult decision to close savings accounts if a customer is rude, abusive, violent, or discriminates in Mm. any way. And there's the rub. Discriminates in any way leaves open a world of opportunities and possibilities. And, of course, by discriminating against those who discriminate, your building society is itself discriminating. feeds into this idea that there are certain views that we all ought to hold, and if we don't hold them, then we're bigoted. And what Stonewall appears to have done very effectively is essentially turn mainstream views into fringe and extreme ones. The idea that men cannot be women, that men can absolutely be trans women, but cannot be women. They cannot change um, what is biological, is a mainstream view that is held by most people. And yet Stonewall have managed to convince the powers that be across our institutions that somehow they are fringe and they are bigoted and they are extreme, and they ought to be shut down by any means possible. And that is an extremely scary place for us to find ourselves in.
3: exactly right. I mean, we were talking earlier to Sarah Phillimore and she was pointing out that we'd all sort of not noticed the way uh, that Halifax responded to somebody a while back. You might remember a few months back when somebody had written to them and complained about something. Um, I think it was the pronoun badges that they were all wearing in their shops, you know, or their, their, their sort of retail outlets. And they got a, le- a note back from, from the Halifax saying, well, if you don't like it, you can always close your account. And that kind of went by the wayside but it clearly was a harbinger of what's actually going on.
1: Yes, exactly. That was important of doom, I think, and perhaps we ought to have woken up and noticed that this was happening uh, sooner. Well, how incredible it is as well, Mike, um, how swiftly customer service can click into gear when you voice opinions that they don't necessarily agree with mm. versus the level of customer service that most people uh, get at most, uh, most times. But I do feel as though... We have become slightly complacent about uh, free speech, and that has somehow allowed this very insidious, pernicious idea that bank accounts can be shut uh, based on views that people hold uh, to, to take hold um and it, it's immensely problematic when it comes to banks because you know we don't quite in the UK have a right to a bank account indeed there are a lot of people who are financially excluded but it's extremely difficult to participate in British society in the British economy if you don't have a bank account very difficult to uh have a, a job you know very difficult to pay for things as we move move towards uh, having a cashless society Um, and, you know, it's a wake up call for those people who, you know, who have um, banged the drum on financial inclusion and how we need to identify ways of ensuring that more and more people do hold bank accounts and are able to participate in that way. But it's also a reminder that this is not something that we can take lightly.
3: No, absolutely right. I've just got a, a rather amusing t- a text here that I must read out. Uh, it says, hello, Mike, I've just tuned in and I thought you had the Princess of Wales on. I don't know if anybody's ever suggested that you look a bit like Catherine. Uh, but you now that, now that they've mentioned it, I think you do a bit. Um, let's talk about the craziness of the TFL network, uh, since you've tweeted about it this morning, calling it deranged. Sadiq Khan's lot uh, now banning from the underground a picture uh, advertising a West End uh, musical because it's got a cake in it.
1: Yes, I think I did describe that as completely deranged. Isn't it extraordinary? They're now worried that that's going to be somewhat, in some way perpetuating obesity, encouraging us to all go out and uh, eat cake. It's of course doing nothing of the sort. And it's in conjunction with these increasingly sinister posters that we're seeing across the London Underground, quite what tourists must think of our city when if they ride on uh, TfL services, they're being warned about uh, staring and touching. And if you see somebody behaving in an appropriate way, this is how you report it yeah. and don't forget off the so-called victim of their okay and these are the ways that you you could possibly approach them and you know it's just gone mad I don't know you know who is being paid to censor these things mm. but might I suggest that it's not the best use of taxpayer money um but it feeds into this kind of wider nanny state problem that we have in Britain that has just grown and grown over 13 years of conservative government okay they're delaying things like the buy one get one free uh ban on uh, certain de- on those deals but But you know, absolutely. When it comes to obesity, when it comes to smoking, when it comes to vaping, when it comes to drinking, because there was a story today from the uh, about the BMA wanting to stop people from having a pint after work, uh, increasing the amount that you would be able. uh, The sorry. Lowering the level of the amount that you're allowed to drink before yeah. you get on the wheel. You know, it's coming from all corners. And my concern is that there's nobody in government, no politician really, who is trying to push back against this, who is trying to say, no, our role is to present people with the information, present them with the risk, to set reasonable rules and laws for people to adhere to. But mm. otherwise, to let them be free to go and live their lives and do what they choose with their bodies put what they choose into their bodies again of course within some reason but that that window of reason seems to just be getting narrower and narrower
3: well they're all frightened to speak out aren't they because they're terrified of being criticized as, as as sort of heartless or you know bigoted in some way or selfish i mean it really is quite ridiculous and we end up finding ourselves with a room full of hypocrites effectively because they all then do the things that they say nobody else should do and then they just look stupid i don't know where it's going to end
1: well, I mean, I, I think if, if we get Labour in power, uh, the next government, then things are just going to get worse and worse. We're mm. going to see more bans and more clampdowns and more restrictions on what we can and cannot do. And I think, frankly, after the coronavirus pandemic, the British public have had uh, enough of that. It does see, feel like a one-way ratchet. It does feel like politicians will just bend with the wind They will go with what they seem to think is the public mood, but often actually goes against the public mood. But the problem is that vested interests and pressure groups things organizations like action on sugar are so powerful in britain today they are able to it seems bend the ear of politicians and convince them that introducing new regulations that restrict what people can and cannot do is the right thing to do and I think it's like free speech there aren't enough people out there who are communicating why this stuff matters and there are many people out there who will think well what does it you know what what problem is it causing if uh we tell supermarkets where they're allowed to place certain products or if we force big food to reformulate their products so they taste less nice well if it stops people from putting on weight then that's a good thing rather than viewing you know mm. from first principles that people have individual responsibility and personal autonomy, and that should come before the agenda of certain nanny status, certain zealots, certain Puritans.
3: Yeah, yeah. my latest one has been the uh, the, the, the seeing of, uh, sort of eco-zealots saying things like, well, you know, even if uh, going to net zero doesn't save the planet, even if it doesn't actually make any difference in the short term, surely making cities more livable and cleaner is a good thing. Well, up to a point, yeah. As long as it doesn't cost everybody their mortgage, it doesn't cost everybody their car, and it doesn't cost everybody uh, so much tax that they can't afford to feed themselves. But there we are. Annabelle, thanks very much indeed. Good to talk to you as ever. Annabel Denham, Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph, talking a great deal of common sense. We will be coming back uh, to the cake story with The World of woke coming up. Peter Cardwell here as well uh, with what's going on at Prime Minister's Questions. Uh, we'll get the highlights from him. Uh, don't forget today, of course, not Rishi Sunak. It's Oliver Dowden and it's Angela Rayner.